Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. How are we doing? Sacramento has stopped baking, at least until next Wednesday. So it's been nice. I keep talking about the weather, but unless you live in Arizona or someplace like that, you have no clue. No clue whatsoever. Anyway, welcome. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state. And uh, if you have a paranormal issue anywhere, we can help you. All right. So all you have to do is shoot me an email or a private message on Facebook. Or even here at the radio show at uh, CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. And we can do that for you. Or check out CaliforniaHaunts.org. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Thursday. One more day to go. It's going to be the weekend, right? What do you guys have planned? I have yard work planned. Lots of yard work. Got to get my backyard into into my meditation area that I have every year. And uh, tonight's guest, I've got a great guest. When I was a kid, the story goes back that we went to Europe twice. And when I was a kid, I know we were flying. Um, I even remember the flight. It was British Airways. And we stopped off at Newfoundland. I believe it was Newfoundland. One of the, yeah, one of the stops. I'll probably get horrible letters from people saying they don't stop there. And uh, went to the bookstore. And they had a book on the Shroud of Turin. I just picked it out because, you know, the cover was the, the, the face that shows up on the, on the Shroud, that uh, negative face thing. And I just thought it looked creepy. So I started to read it. This is this is me at 12 years old. And I start reading this book. And next thing I know, I'm I'm done with the book. And I'm landing in London. Okay. So I have been into this subject since years and years. And I'm not going to tell you how old I am. But let's just put it that way. Enough to see a lot of changes in the world. Okay. So I, I've really been into this. And when I heard this man on another radio show, I was so excited. Because I've always wanted to talk to somebody about the Shroud of Turin. So, yeah. Oh, do you have no clue what that is, Jen? You're going to see. We're going to show you. We're going to tell you about the Shroud of Turin. Okay? We're going to tell you about it. Because it is like the coolest thing. And if it is real, if it, you know, if it is what they say it is, it's incredible. Absolutely incredible. So I'm going to shut up. And I'm going to bring on um, Joseph and let him tell you about himself. And I actually have a couple photos of the Shroud to show you guys, I pulled some stuff off, off, off the internet today, to show you guys while he's talking about his research. So without further ado, here we go. Hi. Hello, sir. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. I am so excited. Oh, my. So you had a you have a, a similar sounding story. I, uh, I read my first book um, on the shroud in 1977, and it had a picture of the the neg what the negative face, but which <laughs> is actually positive, and we can talk more about that as we get okay. into it. But uh, it it was called the Fifth Gospel, and it said, "Is this the face of Jesus Christ?" Right. And um, I was let's see, that was 1977, and I was working full time. I I had quit school, and I guess in about three years earlier, got tired of academics, wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Uh, I, I was born and raised Catholic, but like many people in that age, I guess in any age really, I became an agnostic. But I still kept um, an interest in in religion and philosophy, and it didn't necessarily have to be Christian. You know, I was kind of reading anything and everything at the time. So um, I saw the book and I thought, well, I had never heard of the shroud at that point. Um, I had heard of as as someone who was brought up in the Catholic tradition, I had heard of Veronica's veil, which is this basically a legend of a woman named Veronica who uh, put a towel, um, pressed the towel to Jesus's face on the on his road to Calvary and um, uh, an image supposedly for him. Well, that's you know, 99% sure that that's just a legend, but it could be mm-hmm. connected to the shroud insofar as 
The woman's name is Veronica, which is really Vera Icon, which means true image. So it's probably an ideological story. Uh, if the if the shroud was folded up so that only the face was showing, which is a prominent theory by some historians, um, you know, for one thing, it would make it easier to show people than because the cloth is 14 and a half feet long and three and a half feet wide. Right. And logistically, that makes it hard to especially in those days to to exhibit it. So it'd be easier if it was just just the image of the face. Mm -hmm. So what you see on the right there is. Um, the more lifelike uh, rendition of, of the image, but you see that on the negative. So the, the shroud image itself is like a photographic negative. It's not, it, that's really the only quality of a photograph that it has. Some people will, will try to claim that it's completely a photograph, but it, it's got that photographic quality to it. Um, and I was just fascinated by the book. I, I read it in one sitting and um, I was convinced by the amount of evidence at that time, which wasn't very much really, right. uh, that it was probably authentic. That was the year before American scientists were, were given access to the cloth for five days, 120 hours uh, to do a, a multidisciplinary uh, battery of tests. and. Um, they spent three years um, putting the data together and coming up with a conclusion, which basically concluded in 1981 that um, the the image was that of a real uh, crucified uh, human, and the blood there is blood on the shroud, and how the image uh, got on the cloth is was unknown, and that was their basic um, job. To when they were going through the test, the image got on there. Science mm -hmm. and technology available in 1980. You had people from NASA, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Los Alamos National Laboratories. Um, you know, you had men and women that, that worked in the nuclear and space programs, okay? And so they put people in space, they helped build nuclear bombs, and a lot of them thought they were going to go over to Turin and uh, find the paint five minutes or 30 minutes or less or whatever and go home but they were totally mystified of what caused the image because there's no paint stain dye pigment powder anything on there that makes up the image mm -hmm. so what they said in 1981 about how the image got on there uh being a mystery still tr uh, holds tr true today so mm -hmm. it's it's a fascinating object. I've been studying it for over forty five years now, and it um, is, I'd I'd yeah. It is fascinating because when you look at all the theories that came out since I read the book, you know about it being somebody painting it, you know, and stuff like that. It just uh, it doesn't make sense. None of it makes sense. No, and they 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 did various tests to show that. And for for example, for. Uh, paint or any other pigment you want to you want to talk about they lit the shroud from behind okay and you can see the blood stains on the cloth because the blood does soak through to the all the way through the cloth you can see um uh blood stains on the arms okay so he had his arms crossed and you can see blood stains on each of the arms Mm -hmm. And you can see water stains from when uh, water was put on there various times in its history. But what you don't see is the image. And you know why? It's because there is no paint, pigment, dye, stain, or powder. If there was, if any of those objects were on there, that it would have shown up on that transmitted light photo. And it's not there. Now, wasn't there, um, because this thing got passed around. So wasn't there a fire at one point too? So, so there were kind of burn marks on there. Yeah, actually, there. It's been in two major fires that we know of. The big one, the first big one, was in 1532, uh, when it was in France, and um, it was in a silver casket and uh, in a chapel in Chambéry, France, and a, a drop of molten silver fell on the cloth, and the and the, the cloth was folded up, so. The, the silver went through all the layers. And of course, then when you open it up, 
then it's in multiple places all over the cloth. And then two years later, the poor Claire nuns uh, sewed in a, a whole bunch of patches, which is kind of the thing that really catches your eye when you see the shroud the first time. You see the, the, they sort of jump out at you and you almost don't even see the, the image on there. Uh, and then there was an arson attempt on the shroud in 1997, uh, but fortunately it wasn't uh, su successful. <clears throat> it's all very interesting to me, and and and, and there's been new, new there's sorry about that. There, there's been new dating used on this thing too, right? To where you can almost pinpoint a, a date. Is it beyond from what the carbon did? You know, when they did carbon on it. Well, they, they carbon dated it in um, 1988. Um, the dates that the, the labs gave were 1260 to 1390, which, of course, would be way too late for it to be Jesus. But a lot of the researchers, including myself, that had, you know, extensively studied the show, felt that there had to be something wrong with that date because all of the other evidence accumulated, basically, um, pointed toward its authenticity. So um, for a while, shroud research kind of died down. A lot of people uh, kind of just more or less accepted the date, but there were some people um, still working on it, uh, myself included. And in 2000, uh, my late wife and I presented a paper at an international conference in, in Italy in which we hypothesized that um, the date that the labs got was actually reasonably close for what they got. But uh -huh. we believe that the shroud had been repaired numerous times and that what they actually dated, though, was a combined um, first century cloth with repairs done in the 16th century. And depending on, obviously, how much first century material and 16th century material you have, uh -huh. um, you can get a a medieval date, including the 1260 to 1390. And um, one of the um, original scientists from 1978 who had basically bought the C14 results uh, heard about our paper. And he actually had some, some fibers from the main part of the shroud from 1978. And he was allowed to keep those. That was part of the, the deal that the scientists could keep some of the fibers and stuff. And then he, he also had some fibers that were, had been taken right next to the C14 area. So he said, well, I can prove these people wrong in five minutes. All he, all he had to do was compare the main shroud fibers to the C14 corner fibers, see that they were exactly the same and presto, you know, it's the same cloth and the data is correct. But mm -hmm. he was shocked to find out that when he when he looked at the two samples, they were actually different. They were mm -hmm. chemically different. He found in the C14 sample uh, a gum, a dye, a splice, cotton, things that um, indicate that, that that area had been repaired. And he actually said that we were right and ended up writing a, a, a paper in a peer-reviewed um, a journal called Thermo, Thermochemica Acta, which is, a, I'm sure, a journal that all of us read uh, mm -hmm. faithfully every sure. month when it comes out. Absolutely. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, a lot of people, um, not everybody accepts the theory. In, in the shroud world, you, the only thing that everybody agrees on is that the shrouds in turn and that there's an image on it. Uh, right. Every Everything else is up for grabs for you know, as far as arguments go. You've spent 45 years studying this. What have yes. you concluded? I mean, or, 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 or what's your theories on this thing? Well, I, I have read every major piece on it. And fortunately, most of the, the best stuff is in English. And, and through the goodness of Google Translate, I'm able to, to read a lot of um, foreign material as well, which is mm -hmm. nice. Um, I, I think one of the strongest points for me is the fact that as I learn more and more about what the scientists say about the image, I've just come to believe that it, it's, it's basically impossible for a medieval artist 
to have incorporated all the characteristics that people have found. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, using logic, uh, common sense, and reason, I think it's very reasonable to conclude that it's what it's purported to be, which is the actual burial cloth of, of Jesus of Nazareth. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, it's really a combination of all the evidence, uh, theological, scientific, historical, mystical. Uh, I've, I've myself have had a few mystical experiences. And of course you can't prove those to anybody, but right. in, in many ways, a mystical experience is almost the strongest evidence one can have of something, even though you can't prove it. Right, right. Now, a question I have that's that's kind of bugging me right now is, back in those days, was everybody wrapped in a shroud when they passed away? Uh, Jews in the first century were, yes. And there's a big misconception about that. And, and a, a big reason for that is that, you know, everybody opens their English language Bible and a lot of the translations for John say that he was bound in strips of linen and the, the brain automatically says, ah, wrap like, like a mummy. And that's not the case. For, for one thing, the, the Egyptians had stopped using that type of burial by the first century themselves. The Jews never used the Egyptian method of burial. Mm -hmm. The Jews always used Jewish burials, which included shrouds. Mm -hmm. Okay. And normally, um, if a person was buried in a shroud or one or more shrouds, um, the body would normally decay and the decomposition fluids would, would you know, the body would decompose and it would also uh, make the, the shroud, um, you know, right. rot, basically. Okay. So... In the case of the Shroud of Turin, we have an intact burial shroud with an image of a man. What that suggests is that the dead body somehow left the cloth before the decomposition oils and whatnot could destroy the body and the cloth, which is another thing that obviously points to the historical Jesus and what was reported about his resurrection. Right. And to leave that kind of image on there, wouldn't it take a, a tremendous like energy? Oh, sure. I, I, yeah. Um, you know, personally, I don't, I don't get into trying to figure out too much how the image got on there. You got plenty of scientists, physicists, and that sort of thing, you know, giving you all these complicated formulas and whatnot. I'm just content to say, you know, it was probably a short-term burst of radiation or light uh, short enough not to destroy the cloth itself mm -hmm. um, and that it was connected it's somehow related or connected to what happened at the moment of resurrection which we don't know what that is we can't reproduce a resurrection in a scientific laboratory so I think science can only take us so far um, I think you know you even with the shroud, there's an element of faith. I think people get worried about, well, if, you know, if the shroud's authentic, you're proving, you know, you're proving uh, something that should be taken by faith. Well, not, not really, because you still have to take that leap of faith. I don't think, I think it's less of a leap with the shroud. Mm -hmm. I think God left it for the doubting Thomases of the 20th and 21st century. Mm -hmm. And I think he left an image in an age where, we communicate more by images than than with words. Um, I think it, it actually makes us ask more questions than than it gives us answers that we know that we, we might solve one part of it, and then we come up with a, with more questions. Uh, it is literally the most intensely studied artifact in human history, not just relic, mm -hmm. but any artifact in history. In other words, there's there's no object on the place on the face of the planet that has been studied in terms of the number of man and women hours put into it than the shroud itself. So, you know, if it was a simple painting, I think the Sterp team alone would have figured that out in 1978. Nobody knows how that image got on the cloth. Mm -hmm despite what you hear, some skeptics will show you their poor rendition and say, see, I did it. 
just with uh, the materials that were available in the 14th century. Well, guess what? You know, there were materials available in the 16th century to build a plane, but that doesn't mean they actually did it right. until later. Okay. Right. right. So. so then this thing, I'm not saying anything, but the shroud would have had to been picked up. Sometime, if, if I go back to my Bible, I was born Catholic too, but I wasn't, I wasn't I'm not a good Catholic. <laughs> still Catholic. Um, so really the shroud would have been taken out of that cave after they found the door ajar. You know, when they went, or the, the, the women, or somebody went in and got the shroud. So what's it say yeah. about the shroud? Well, you know, there's the different, there's actually differences in the gospel accounts of, who went to the tomb and who, you know, who saw it when it, there's Peter and John and Mary mentioned quite a bit. Um, you have to remember one thing about um, the, some traditions of the Jews, a, a burial cloth would have been considered unclean. Okay? okay. And you wouldn't have taken a shroud out of a tomb and say, look what I've got. Right. You know, you would keep that on no pun intended you would keep that under wraps um now they they probably made an exception i mean who why would you keep a bloody shroud unless it belonged to somebody who was very very important mm -hmm. and so i believe the the early church preserved it tried mm -hmm. to keep it quiet and it passed down through um you know probably powerful individuals and and groups through the centuries. Um, and, um, you know, there are gaps in, in the Shroud's history, but that's not surprising. Um, I don't think you have many objects in museums all over the world that there's a, a minute by minute account of where it's been every second, right, right. you know? So you would expect the Shroud um, to, to have gaps of periods, uh, where where it's not known where it is but historians and other researchers um ha have given plausible explanations of where it could have been all the way from the time of the crucifixion up to the time that it was that it first historically surfaced in france in the mid 1350s in fact i recently published a a 45 page article on academia that lists uh, references, documented references to the shroud, or not to, I shouldn't say the shroud, to burial linens, which mm -hmm. sometimes they, they specify a shroud. Sometimes they're talking about other cloths. But um, I have at least one reference for each century from the second through the first half of the 14th century. So it's very plausible that the, um, that the shroud did exist through history. And of course, before 1578, it would not have been called the Shroud of Turin because it only was called that after it reached Turin in 1578. So you have to look at, at historical records, look at the references where they're talking about burial linens and images and stuff, and, and see if you can make a match or a correspondence to what they're talking about and, and our Shroud of today. It's just incredible that this would last this you know long to be be able to be seen today because a lot of the stuff didn't i mean outside of what was in the pyramids because all that stuff was sealed off but it's just amazing because it changed hands so much that, mm -hmm. that that it survived yeah for one thing i mean people people are kind of under the misconception that uh if you have a a, a two thousand year old textile and nobody touches it it's gonna rot on its own over two thousand years that's not the case i handled a one time i forget who brought it um, some lecture, I think, or something. But he had a 4,000-year-old piece of, of Egyptian linen. It was just, you know, a small piece. It wasn't a huge thing. But it was intact and, and surprisingly durable. So if it was Jesus's burial cloth and people did try to protect it, it, it probably was in somewhat secure surroundings, at least mm -hmm. part of the time. And um, if if care is taken uh, of it, it certainly could last two thousand years without a problem. I just it, it's just hard to wrap your head around though when you, when you think about the image on there. You know, because they're like like 
there's been there were so many crucifixions back at that time. Why would this be the only shroud like this unless the unless there was something really special about it? Yes, exactly. As, as I mentioned before, yes, there were thousands of crucifixions. There were you know thousands of burials, but in most cases, a normal person who's wrapped in a shroud will will die, decay, and the shroud will be destroyed with it. So we have something here special, and it seems to point to the specific, um, it has all the wounds that Jesus had. In other words, a cap of thorns, not a crown of thorns. It was pushed all over his, the back of his head. It's got the piercing in the side. It's got the severe scourging, and his legs are not broken. In, in most cases, um, the legs of the the men on the cross were broken so that they could no longer to breathe. They had a push up on their feet to, to get air. And once your legs were broken and you can't push up anymore, you asphyxiate and die. That way they can get the, the uh, bodies off the cross uh, faster that way. So we, we have various indications that this is, specific to Jesus and not just any random crucifixion victim of the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like getting back to why the imprint would be there, you know, if it is like the like they say in the Bible, then there, there had to be intense energy. I mean, even being a ghost hunter, you know, a ghost has to generate or pull from so much energy to appear. So in order for him to rise and, and come up, because I mean, People saw him outside the tomb. You know, so yeah. there had to be tremendous, if, if it is him, there had to be tremendous energy for him to rise to begin with. So that that would that definitely would have put the imprint on there. Yeah, we didn't have any human witnesses to it, but I'm sure, you know, God wanted it that way. Uh, but you know, if the shroud were to be authentic, shroud's an actual witness. Um and that one of the interesting points about that image is that it's only on the top several thousandths of an inch of the fibers. So a fiber is made up of about um, 200 microfibrils. Right. And the image resides only on the top one to two micro microfibrils. Okay. So it's very, very superficial. And that means that, um, the um you know if it was the paint dye pigment stain any of that stuff would have gone all the way through down to the cloth okay the blood does that and that the blood came on by by contact and the blood we know went on first because there's no image under the blood okay okay and this really negates artist doing it because how would an artist do it if he would whatever production method he used he would depict the body right and then put the blood stains in the appropriate spot what artist would even think about or would be talented enough to put the blood first and then draw the body around the blood so that mm -hmm. they're they line up properly no no artist would do that and the image can only is best seen between about six and 10 feet. Okay. If you get closer than that, you can hardly make out the image. And in the further away you get, um, it's, it's harder to see the image. Now, an artist, if he's going to try to fool somebody, he's going to try to make it as clear as he can for all the people he's trying to fool, right? Why make it so limited that you have to get within six or 10 feet? Right. Okay. There are just so many arguments like that, that mitigate against an artist, but there's a lot of weird characteristics of the shroud that suggest, wow, this went on in a very strange way. And if you believe that that Jesus did miracles and that sort of thing, it's very easy to say, okay, God or Jesus w w were able to zap an image on on the cloth, and and it's it's negative. It's got spatial encoding in it. Most people will will call that 3D, but it's which is not quite accurate but you know we you, you'll hear that term a lot it's got 3d information it's superficial why in the world would an artist do it that way 
if you see different renditions of the shroud in in the different centuries some of them are are laughable mm-hmm. and and you wouldn't have to do something so elaborate to fool people in those days you could draw a stick man put it on a cloth and say this is the the real cloth of Jesus and you'd have you know hundreds or thousands right. believing it okay the, the shroud's way too complicated and extensive for an artist to have done it i believe Another question I have too is, and I know this because I was collecting um, Roman antiquities for a while. And what about the coins? You know, for a lot of Roman Romans were buried with coins in their eyes. There's no coins in this in, in this person's eyes. Uh, there is a custom that Jews sometimes were buried uh, okay. with coins in their uh, over their eyes, and that was supposedly to keep their eyes shut. Mm-hmm. It, I wouldn't say it was a widespread custom, but mm-hmm. there are examples in 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 history where Jews did that. Okay, and in 1977, three of the the scientists that would were part of the team that went over 1978, when they were looking at a an an image of the the face in that uh, object that does the spatial encoding, which is called mm-hmm. the VP8 image analyzer. They notice what seemed to be bulges over the eyes and they postulated that it, they may be coins. Okay. And then a Jesuit priest by the name of Francis, uh, Father Francis Phyllis, who was a Jesuit, uh, started doing further research on that. He took a, a blow up of the right eye and saw what he thought were four Greek letters uh UCAI which three of those would be part of the inscription for Tiberius Caesar mm-hmm. um but amazingly he found uh other coins and the, and this po- coin should, I should have said it is a a pilot a Pontius Pilate coin called the lepton mm-hmm. and he actually found four and I think after he'd passed away, like three more were found. I think there were seven in existence of pilot leptons that had a, a misspelled C. It should have been a K mm-hmm. if the, if it was spelled right. But some of the die makers um, actually use the C instead of a K mistakenly. So that if it's the coin's not on there, they that's one of the biggest coincidences in the world that they he saw UCAI and then they they discovered later that there actually were real coins with that, that mistake in it. Some people will tell you that the, you, you can't discern the letters Mm -hmm. um, on something that small because of the weave. It's too, um, the way the weaves constructed, you shouldn't be able to see uh, an inscription. But my take on that is that if you have an image that nobody can explain, in the first place, the whole image, why do you have to get overly rational about seeing a coin on the eye? If, if the whole image is inexplicable, couldn't God put a pilot lepton on the coin so that somebody would find it? So it's an open question, but I think, I think maybe it could be God's sense of humor there saying, toying with humans a little bit and say, okay, well, you scientists say that, that you can't see the image of a coin, the, the letters on there, I'm going to put a coin on there and let people find the, the inscription anyway. Well, that's what I was wondering, because I, I would think that it, if, if there was one there, that, that you could at least, because that, that's so clear, that image is so clear that you could at least see it on there, but you, mm-hmm. know, you don't see it. At least the bulge, yeah, the main bulge, sure. Yeah, that's what I was wondering, you know, if, 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 it were, if there was a coin there or not. It's just... It's just so fast. Like I said, you know, it's been a fascination of mine since I was a kid. And to think that this could have happened and this thing, like I said, got, got saved all these years up to this point. Where is it now? Where is it displayed somewhere or is it uh, yeah. keeping? It's kept in uh, St. John the Baptist Cathedral in Turin, which is about 350 miles uh, northwest of Rome. Um, they used to have a special chapel. Uh, just for the shroud, but that was um, uh, under uh, repair for a while, and they moved it to the main part of the cathedral. And I think they never ended up moving it back to the 
chapel once that was repaired. So it's in a special container um, rolled up or let's see, it's not rolled up. It used to be rolled up. It's um, it's in a special bulletproof container with argon gas to try to help preserve the image because there's some um, researchers that believe that the image is degrading to the point where it could catch up with the the background and the image could literally disappear. But I always feel I've felt that, you know, God will probably always preserve that one way or the other. Um, I'm so excited that you're here. I keep saying that, but I, I truly am. In your studies on this, what kind of access ha have you had to it? Well, um, not, not much really. I've seen it in person twice, but <laughs> you can't do much research 10 to 15 feet away. It's, it, right. it was great to see it. Um, my research, you know, entails getting all the articles of book. I've got over 350 books. I've got file cabinets of correspondence. I belong to different shroud groups. I, you know, I've got one of the best, um, personal English language collections in the world. Um, so that's the best I can do until until the Turin authorities of the Vatican invites me to see it close up. I'm going to have to, you know, do what I can from afar academically. Absolutely. And I perfectly understand that. I wouldn't want anybody touching it either. <laughs> um, what do you think is people's fascination with this? Well, I, I for one, certainly uh, understand it. Um, because, you know, the bug bit me in 1977 and never let go. And I know I'm going to be doing it the rest of my life. I, I just feel if Shroud were really the burial cloth of Jesus, mm -hmm. it, it's it's kind of mind boggling. And the repercussions are big because, you know, it, depending on your point of view, it it may point to the... the um, uh, exclusivity of Christianity to the exclusion mm -hmm. of, of other religions. And just that alone is, is uh, a huge point. And, um, you know, I think it is a boon to faith. I think it's a gift from God. It's not something that people worship. I don't think people often make that claim that people worship it. Uh, you know, I don't think anybody worships it. I think it's a support for faith. Um, mm -hmm. And I just think it's, you know, if, if there's any chance of it being authentic, I think it's been worth every second of my time that I've spent on it. And, you know, I've been doing, I know a couple of people in the field that have, uh, you know, hit over 50 years studying it. it there is a real fascination with it. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's almost like a spiritual Mount Everest. People want to get to the top and see what they can find. Do you think the Vatican will ever give permission to the scientists to really, really, you know, really, really look at it again? Because all the technology has been changing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, science and technology has advanced light years from 1978. There's there's just so many things they could do um, nowadays. You know, it's hard to predict. Um, now, I've heard I've got some friends who have some good contacts in um, both Turin and Rome. Mm hmm. And they say that there's there's definitely not going to be any new testing under Pope Francis, but um, of course he's I think he's what 86 now or something like that. So you know maybe you never know the next Pope may um, may see it differently. Uh, the new Archbishop of Turin um, was um, it's it's a priest of the Turin diocese and he was on one of the shroud groups, um, you know, he was a, a integral member of one of the turn shroud groups. Mm -hmm. So that's a good sign. But unfortunately he doesn't have much say so in what goes on. The, the marching orders always come from the Pope in Rome. Um, I sure hope they let, they let some additional testing be done sometime. I'd lo love to see it in my lifetime. I don't know if it's going to happen. Um, but you know, my my take is, you know, if you're in the church, if the business of trying to save souls, the church should, should not sit on this. They should mm -hmm. 
put it out there and put as much information about it as possible. I think the longer you go on not disproving it, the more chance there is that it's authentic because you, you can never reach a hundred percent certainty. And the church as a, as a rule never pronounces on the authenticity of relics. The most they'll do will they'll say, okay, if, if they know a, a relic is not authentic, they will not let you, you know, it, there will be no exhibitions and that sort of thing. You, you, they don't want you to venerate it, but if they're not sure, or if they think it is, they won't say it is, but they, they will allow you to venerate it. And just by the fact that since 1988, despite the C14 results, um, there has been a, exhibitions in 98, 2000, 2010, 2015, and the next one is probably I under underline probably will be in 2025. It hasn't been announced yet. They usually don't announce that until about 12 to 18 months Mm -hmm. before it happens. But I think it's been mentioned twice um, prominently since 2015. So I would be very, very, very surprised if if it didn't come off in 2025, whether Francis is still alive or not. The other thing that struck me while you were talking, as far as the belief system goes, maybe, you know, they're waiting, you know, because all this is supposed to play out in the Bible, you know, where the Antichrist is coming and all this mm. is happening. Maybe they're just holding off because when it gets, you know, when it gets near that point, they'll they'll they'll, they'll claim it's authentic so that people's faith goes out. Um, I've never really thought of that, but um, and I don't know if the if the church authorities would go that far to think right. like that. Um, I guess it's possible, but I I don't know. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm just saying that maybe, you know, there's, there's always a maybe in there because mm-hmm. the faithful are going to have to be steered, you know, certain ways because, because the, the other coming and all that. Um, in your 45 years studying this with your wife, what, what has struck you to be the most prominent feature of it? Hmm. Um, well, I, I don't, I don't know, but I, I tell you, I, when I saw that, just the face on the book um, in 1977, I was just mesmerized and hip, almost hypnotized by it. And I, you know, I've got naturally have pictures of it all over, over my house. Um, it, it's amazing. You look at that face and there's a majesty and serenity there, uh, despite the fact that he was horribly beaten and crucified. And, you know, there's, uh, there's actually some of, not to criticize your your pictures there, but there are some that are even better than that, mm-hmm. where you can um, you can just see the the beauty and uh, of the face, and it kind of goes right through, at least for me, goes right through my soul. and And my wife kind of felt the same way. It's like she said there was just a knowing in her heart that it was the real thing, and it, we're at, we're actually looking at what the physical um face of jesus and his body looked like you know when he walked the earth 2000 almost 2000 years ago so for these scientists that got to take this the 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 pieces of of the shroud with them i mean do they still have the capability of testing those little pieces or are they pretty much gone now oh most of them um have been you know tested so much they're degraded to the point where um, what are left, um, it's hard to test those. Um, they really need new samples. Um, and they took some material. In 2002, they performed what what they called a restoration of the shroud, which a lot of people were upset at because they, they did it on their own and they didn't consult anybody. Mm-hmm. And they took some vials of um, burnt material and stuff for supposedly for future testing, but they've they've been sitting on it since 2002, and nobody's had access to them. So um, we we just don't know what the future holds for the shroud. Um, we just have to pray that you know some wise pope says yes, it's time to to do another round of testing on this on this cloth. 
Mm-hmm. Now, when you talk about the, it being sealed up in something with, with certain chemicals, you know, in, in the air to, to, keep, to preserve it, who came up with the idea or, or the chemicals that had to be used? Or how uh, did there, that come about? Yeah, there was an Italian company, um, I forget what it was called, that kind of specialized in, in that pres- preservation aspects and whatnot. And I think they they donated um, the container and all the workmanship. I, I don't think they even charged the diocese to do it because of the impact and relevance of the shroud. But, um, you know, there's there's smart people out there that know what kind of gases you need to preserve textiles. And um, the Italians, I think, did a good job of, of setting that up so that it could be better preserved. Now, you've written a couple books on this, right? Yes, I have. Um, first one was called Wrapped Up in the Shroud, Chronicle of a Passion. And um, Whoops, it was sorry, wrong one. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> it was first published in um, 2011. And then in 2020, I updated it um, and included, um, you know, material from the, the previous, the first edition ended you know, like before the end of 2011. Mm-hmm. So I added material from 2012 to 2020, you know, in my, with my shroud research uh, during that time. And then the second book was also published in 2020 in the fall. Um, and that one is 800 pages. And it's, it's about the, Politics, egos, and agendas that um, affected the the um, process of the dating of the shroud. Now, it, it it may sound a little incongruous that I said they um, possibly got close to the to the real date. That was that was only by accident because there was just there were just so many improprieties. Um, I mean, I have 800 pages here, and I also have a page on my website for overflow because I knew it would keep going. And I have about 80 additional entries um, in that. And I, you know, I really believe based on the evidence that finding the truth of the shroud really came in second to, for example, promoting the C14 method. Mm-hmm. Originally, they um, there were going to be seven labs that were going to do the shroud. And they were going to take samples from several different spots. And the Turin authorities ultimately decided to only have three labs do it and only take it from one spot. And interestingly enough, the the four labs that were rejected are no longer in business. The three that got the date to shroud, they're raking in billions each year. Okay. And the fact that they took one sample only is just, it's ludicrous basically because you don't have anything to compare it with. If that area had been repaired, right? you, you know, you, you don't have a, a, a barometer to measure that by. Now that's why Ray Rogers work was so important because he actually had samples from the main shroud in 1978. And then he also had fibers from near the C14 area. And he found that they were different. But the C14 people only had the bad sample and had nothing to compare it to. So it it was badly done. The the C14 test was just badly botched. And, um, you know, people have a misconception that C14 is foolproof. It's not. There's a lot of mistakes sometimes with it. It's, It's thrown out in, in many cases, even when the archaeologists don't know why why the dating's off. So there's other methods nowadays that um, can, can date in a different manner. So when people ask, will they ever do another C14 test? My answer is probably not because they don't really know. Well, we, we kind of do know what went wrong with the first one, but some people are convinced that that um, the C14 
method is is accurate. And in this case, it actually may have been, but there's newer, I think that the inclination would be to go with the newer technology because, you know, if, if somebody from, if you had the choice of using equipment from 1978 or equipment from today, everybody would pick today, right? So if there's a dating method that's newer and proven, um, I think they'll they'll use that over the C14, which which historically has had some problems with it at times. Very interesting. And on that image, that's so clear. How did they get that clear image? You like the two the the face. The, yeah, okay. The face. Well, on the left is what you see on the shroud with the naked eye. All right. Uh-huh. And then in the 1898, the uh, an amateur photographer named Secundo Pia um, took a picture of it using the old, uh, you know, big camera and glass plates. Now, anybody old enough to remember the old style uh, film, you know, process, you would take a picture, you would, when you finish the roll, you would take it to Kmart or whatever, and when they developed it, you'd get your pictures back, but you'd also get a roll of, uh, you know, the, the, the negatives. And when you look at the negatives by themselves, you say, who or what it was that? But when you had the, the pictures and you can compare it, you go, oh, yeah, that's and they're obviously different. So the, the image you see on the right is what you see on the photographic negative. And, and Secunda Pia didn't expect to see that. He knew that the one on the left was was um, when he took a negative of it. He I'm not sure exactly what he expected to see, but he certainly didn't expect to see the lifelike image that we see on the right. And he said he was so startled that he almost dropped plate. So um, the, the how how clear it is um, really one of one of the incredible mysteries of the shroud that the the image is like a photographic negative and that it comes out so clear um when you when you look at your negative it's, a, it's an absolutely incredible image that's for sure and i'm like you when i saw the book and it had that image on the front that's what drew me in i i agree with yeah. that 100 percent. so where do you see the uh i mean if, if, if the, let's say the vatican allows you guys to really look at this thing again you know to look at it again what type of technology do you think they're going to use on it this next round? Mm. Uh, I don't know exactly. Uh, a lot of the scientists I that I communicate with sure have ideas. Um, Sturp had actually um, published a, a, a volume of 27 tests that they wanted to um, do in 1984. Okay. And believe it or not, this is one of the interesting things that's talked about in my C14 book. In July of 1985, Cardinal Ratzinger, who later became Pope Benedict XVI, mm-hmm. gave approval for STERP to do all 27 tests, which was going to include the C14 test. And later on, somehow, some somebody or some group was powerful enough to get uh, Cardinal Ratzinger's approval rescinded. Uh, Ratzinger was probably the, I'd say the maybe like the third highest official in the Vatican at the time, who was powerful enough to go over his head and and have the, the C14 labs only do the test. And the C14 labs insisted that the STERP group be eliminated. And I think that was because they didn't want the good scientists there to be looking over their shoulder for just their tests. They were so confident about their their C14 method, which by the way, was only about 11 years old, that particular method for C14. Uh, That new method that they used was only 11 years old at the time and was unproven on textiles. So, um, you know, there was, there was just a lot of 
missteps in, in, in the whole process. And, you know, Ray Rogers was always fond of saying, uh, there'll be, there'll be hell to, to pay when the truth comes out. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it had to go with the technology they had back then too. I mean, you're, you know, you're, you're only as good as whatever you're able to do. And it's, an, and you can, you, you can kind of say that nobody knew the technology was going to go the, the, the direction that it did, you know, so that that's what we have right now. And hopefully they open it up again and, and you guys can get another crack at it. Yeah, but it, it was a mistake not to have let Sturp right. um, participate in the C-14 and to do the other test, in my opinion, because, mm-hmm. you know, as I mentioned, C-14 can be wrong. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't you shouldn't have one test be the end-all and be-all when you've got, you know, if you've got one test that says one thing and you've got 100 tests that say the other, mm-hmm. you don't you don't throw out the 100 and keep the one. I mean, that's... That's bad science in my my opinion. But some people that don't want to see the shroud to be authentic and mm-hmm. were happy with the result, they mm-hmm. were happy to do that in that case. Sure, sure, sure. I even remember in high school and college, then you know, um, my history teachers, humanities teachers saying, well, you know, even my anthropology teachers, you know, talking about C-14 and how, you know, the dates could be off with it, with the stuff yeah. they're getting. You know, they, they were teaching that in high school and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like, I agree with you. There, you know, there's probably people that do not want this thing to be authenticated, you know, and, and then find yeah. out it's authentic. Uh, yeah, that's one of the repercussions I mentioned before of, of a real shroud is that a person may, might have to change their worldview, which is scary for a lot of people. So it's just easier in, when you get, you know, if you're close to something that's going to turn your world upside down. You either ignore it or you work to manipulate the results so that it's in line with with your own worldview. Now, with that type of testing, let me ask you this, and I'm just thinking like a journalist. You know, you, you get the date down, and what about the bloodstains? They can't do anything with the bloodstains now, can they? As far as you mean testing like right. DNA in it or right. something, that right. sort of thing? Yeah. yeah, not really. There's um, They did a some DNA testing in 1995, I think from a, a blood sample at the back of the head. But the problem was it, it was too degraded. And the other problem is that, you know, hundreds of people have touched the shroud over the shen- centuries right, right, right. and have left their DNA on the cloth. So you're not going to get a clean DNA sample of the person that was originally on it. So, you know, sometimes I think it's just nice to have something to believe in. You know, and if this is what people are, are believing in, that this is who it is, then fantastic. You know, because we, I mean, as humans, we have to have a belief that, that, that we're going to, you know, progress in all this. And it's nice to just have something to believe in that, that, that you think is a miracle. Yeah, well, you know, one argument a lot of people make um, is that there's been a lot of fake relics. Mm-hmm. And nobody will deny that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't, just because there are fake relics doesn't mean that the shroud is fake. Okay. Right. Each relic should be evaluated based on its own merits. And since the shroud is literally the most intensely studied artifact in human history, there has to be something to it. Right. You, you would think, you know, right. and tomorrow right. I, I would, I can't imagine them coming up with enough evidence to overturn what's been accumulated since 1898. It would just, you would just need mountains and mountains and mountains of negative evidence to overcome what's been accumulated since 1898. And I don't, I really just don't think that can happen. I also can't imagine that people all these years have hidden this thing. They fought over it. They've, they've died over this, you know, they've died, died, literally died over this thing in battles to preserve it. And it not being authentic. Right. Well, it's possible. I mean, you have, you do have religious um, fanatics in different religions that will, will, will do very um, strange things for their beliefs, mm-hmm. including dying for it. But I think the evidence, the accumulation of evidence for the shroud 
um, makes it very easy to make the conclusion that it's probably authentic. Right, right. I agree. I agree. So what's next for your research? Well, um, I've written since uh, October of 2020, I think I've written about 60 articles on academia. And um, a lot of them I update as I get more information. So that's kind of an ongoing project. And then um, another thing I'm working on is that, um, you know, over the years, I mentioned the originally a paper that my wife and I presented in 2000. Uh, I've been keeping up with the repair theory and I've presented papers um, several times at conferences on it. I'm working on a revision for that uh, to be presented hopefully at a conference later this year. And um, I, I'm just one of those people that um, kind of keep up to the minute on the shroud. I have an email group to okay. which I send um, alerts about shroud information um, in terms of the latest uh, books, articles, videos, podcasts, and um, uh, everybody that's on the list um, is is blind copied so that the you know their email wouldn't be shared. And I send them out you know several times a month, and if anybody wants would like to get those, um, all they have to do is email me at uh, J Marino. 240 at AOL.com. That's J-M-A-R-I-N-O at AOL.com and ask to be um, added to the list. And I'd be, be happy to do that. And that can help them keep up with all the latest Shroud news going around the world. Fantastic. Thank you so much. This was a lifetime dream to talk to somebody about the Shroud, you know, and it's just, it was, it, it was an incredible hour. Well, um, um Happy to be here and happy to come back anytime you'd like me to. Absolutely. We will do that. I promise. But uh, you have a good uh, evening and you have a good weekend. And thank you again. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. All Take right. care. Bye. 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 All right. That was, that was a dream. Like I said, that was a dream come true for me because I, I have looked into this, this shroud for years and years and years. Tomorrow night guys is the big night. We did the, uh, we did the deed last night. I know that sounds terrible, but Nancy and I did. <laughs> I don't want to spread rumors like that. Nancy did. Nancy did it last night, and uh, we had something completely off the wall that I didn't expect either happen, you know, about about my past life. So uh, it's not what I expected it was going to be, but it turned out to be pretty cool because it, re re it related to a lot of stuff in this life that I'm, li that I'm living now. So be sure to tune in tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Uh, before I sign off tonight, I'm going to show Mr. Marino's uh, website for you and the, and the books he's written and where you can get them. And uh, don't forget that email address so that you can get, you know, the email from him for updates on the Shroud because it's an ongoing mystery. And uh, it's great. In fact, I, that's one of my, 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 my life's goals is to go to Italy so I can check out the Vatican and, and go to Turin and see this in person. Because I've just, I've just, I've just been so into it. Anyway, if you like the show, oh, we're not that far yet. Are we? Yeah, we are. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We are equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. For those of you watching from YouTube, if you uh, click on that little ghost down in the bottom right-hand corner, you will uh, be able to subscribe to the show and get alerts as to when we're going to be on next and what topics. And that's good for you because there's over 250 videos on there and they're all varying topics, not just paranormal. As you can tell, this one wasn't paranormal. This was a historical topic. And we've also got health topics and everything else you can think of. So check that out. And uh, I'd appreciate you subscribing. Um, let's see. I covered that. Sugar 5. Trying to remember all this stuff. It's been a long day. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, as you can see, there's a ticker at the bottom of the page. And with that ticker, that means that California Haunts uh, does not take any money raising to investigate. So what we do is we take donations. And, uh, of course, we have expenses that come out of my pocket because I'm the owner. And so anything you can help me with would be great at, uh, at paypal.me at California Haunts or Venmo and then type in California Haunts. Also, Saturday, don't forget, I'm teaching a psychic development class 
uh, beginning class. I'll teach you how to open and close that psychic door. I'm going to introduce you to your spirit guides. And not only your your uh, spirit guide, your pet, your animal guide, your you know visit the spirit library, but I'm also going to introduce you to your health spirit guide, who might give you advice about things going on with you. So if you're interested in that, cruise on over to meetup.com and type in California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team. You can get to that event from there. But I want to thank you and I want to thank our guest for coming on. I really appreciated it tonight. I loved it. And I will see you guys tomorrow. And here's his information for you. Website, homestead.com forward slash new vistas. And both the books wrapped up in the shroud. And 1988, Carbon 14 Dating on the Shroud of Turin. And the books are available at Amazon. Again, thank you guys very much. And I will see you tomorrow at 6.30. It should be an interesting show. Have a good Oh, by the way, Nancy will be here too. Have a good day. Uh, My mouth doesn't want to work tonight. Have a good night. <laughs> <laughs>